Welcome to our Agile Tales, where we share the various successes and trials we've encountered as we navigate corporate levels and political waters to transform the business to be adaptable to this forever changing world. We are continuing our conversations with Natal Denk, a workplace, culture, and people development expert. She is a pioneer in the Agile HR movement and coaches clients across all industries ranging from tech to nonprofits to global banks. In 2017, she co-founded the Agile HR community and in 2020, co-authored the pioneering book, Agile in HR. If you missed our previous episodes, we suggest revisiting them first. Otherwise, we're happy to have you here as we embark on further exploring Agile in HR on our Agile Tales. Hello, Natal. Thank you for coming back onto our podcast, our Agile Tales. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Lovely to be here. Now, last time we talked about experiments. Really love how you say come up with the small scale, cheery experiments. This is definitely the agile ways of working as you experiment in a small scale before you actually roll the changes out to the antagonization. Now, what if the company has offices around the world? Then wouldn't the different offices have different culture, also different laws and regulations, labor laws, for example. So when you experiment in a small scale, it may be under under a different law and regulation. So how would you roll that out from that small scale experiment to the rest of the organization with all these different factors? Yeah, it's a very good question and very valid. So it's part of what you do around the deciding where you might test something first and why. You might consciously decide to test in two quite different locations that have very different regulations to see what that means. It really varies. And this is part of the planning, very similar to if you're releasing a product. You know, if you think about releasing a product in the market, you're going to be very mindful. Apparently, Australia is a place where they release digital products products first is a bit of a test because Aussies love getting new shiny digital toys. And, and if it goes well in Australia, then it's worthwhile trying it elsewhere. You can, you can do the same thing with your organization. You may purposely want to test a few of those constraints and understand what does it mean. I would advise that because that's always what you get, isn't it? That, oh, well, that's not going to work here because our labor laws are this. And it's like, okay, well, let's think about how this solution needs to fit that labor law and this labor law, you know, and what does that mean? Or does it, you know, is this a constraint that we've built or does it really exist? So it's also about kind of testing those things. I always talk about this innovation within constraints. So rather than going, oh, we, we can't do this because of this compliance issue, we go, okay, well, what are we trying to do first? What's the problem and what's the solution? And then, okay, how much is that true? You know, like the classic is often there's a collection of data because it's deemed that that data is going to need to be used in a court of law or something if someone does something wrong. But how likely is that? And, and are you designing a whole system based on someone doing something wrong, where most people do a great work, they do their best work that they can when they come to. So again, it's going back to these core principles of humans, values. And if you're designing with those principles in mind, then you're not designing based on compliance needs, you're designing on the user experience, and then you go and validate. 
Well, then I have another question because the scenario that you talked about or that actually I gave you is a global company with offices around the world. Now, what happened if the company is completely remote, meaning they actually have workers from around the world? So that means you have you know, workers in different countries with different laws and regulations and different culture. How would you even start the experiment that way? So I work with companies like that all the time. Again, I don't think it's that different because it's just understanding because if someone's working in a certain country and they're subject to certain labor laws, you would have known that when you hired and you, you know, you've already considered that in the kind of contract of employment. So I, I don't see it any different. I actually think it's sometimes it's maybe even easier because that's just part of the solution. How does this work across all our people, wherever they log in from, that kind of concept. One thing I've seen is a company I work with you know, changes that started to happen from the pandemic and working from home, they wanted to look at how could they do that, allow people to work from different parts of the world. And then they started to think about, well, if you're, you're someone that works in a country, but you have a visa and you're allowed to work in another country for a period of time. So for example, I live in the UK in Scotland, but I'm Australian. So I have an Australian passport. So this company went, what if we allow people to go and work in that country where they have a passport up to the time when it doesn't infect your tax? Yeah. So often that's three months or a bit less. So they thought this is a great benefit for people, but let's do it in a controlled iterative testing stage. So they, for example, did Europe first because it was easier because there was movement and it was all based on visas. So, okay, we know that people can be moving in this area and because providing you are European, you have a European passport for different places. And they ran that for a period of time. And they were always trying to build a digital solution that supported it. So it wasn't a manual thing that people had to give all their evidence every time. How can we have the visa information or the passport information in the employee system? So when someone asks to go and work in another country for a period of time, it goes through all the checklists and it can say yes or no, you know, based on this. So it's as automated as possible. And I believe that company is now at the stage where they're allowing, so someone like the Australian example, I think someone that was South African now has gone and worked in South Africa for a period of time, despite the fact that they're based in a European country. So for me, that's a great example, isn't it? So how do you test it in stages and you're building something with the idea of scaling to other scenarios? They said to everyone at the organization, this is something that we're doing. We know there's lots of other requests out there for people that want to go to lots of different types of countries, but we're just starting with this minimal viable product, this proof of concept first. And once that's demonstrated that it can work, you know, maybe in six months time, we'll allow other people to, to do it. So again, if you're transparent, you treat it like an experiment, you give out data and you're open with what you're doing, then I think it's very possible. Well, with everything that you said, I am actually very curious. Are you familiar with Beyond Budgeting? Oh, yeah, that... of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no wonder, because what you said mm -hmm. is very much in what Beyond Budgeting was saying, including the reward is not based on the, the fixed targets and what happened if it is a fixed target. You know, how do you actually enable performance instead of managing performance? And I really like the one that you said, don't build a system just in case somebody will do something wrong. 
<laughs> so it is a very totally, much yeah concepts well really. there's a lot of crossover you know like let's be honest that you know a lot of the principles that are going to something like beyond budgeting it's very similar to the principles that are going into that something like an agile hr kind of evolution and then if we think about it if we want to deliver the employee experience there needs to be a much more joined up approach with finance, HR, compliance, the support functions or corporate functions. There's lots of various terms that are used. But, you know, even if you think about a basic journey like onboarding, so someone getting a job, getting their contract, coming in for their first day or logging in for their first day, accessing their tech, meeting their team, meeting their manager, you know, so all of that, there's multiple touch points and there's multiple functions involved in that experience. So we need to design that together as opposed to designing different parts of that experience, because we all know what it's like when it's being designed in silos. Uh, it feels very disconnected and someone turns up on the first day and they can't access their tech and the form hasn't been filled in or they don't have a pass to get, you know, all of that. It's disaster. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. You know what you're saying, it's so inspiring and you are definitely taking HR to the next level. <laughs> Let's talk about company culture. I'm curious, does HR define and implement company culture? Well, actually, let's get broader. What or how does HR help leadership? Defining and implementing culture, defining and implementing company value, figure out what leadership styles needed, leadership or management develop training, what? Um, so it's quite a massive topic in question. So all of those things are, are things that, that are really important for the health of an organization. And if HR's role being about the people side of the business, then generally HR will play an important role in helping those things be defined and created and enabled is a, a word uh, that we use a lot or supported. But HR should never be sort of seen as the owners or keepers of those kind of topics. And I think where you've seen that kind of thing go wrong is, you know, big leadership programs or, you know, we've redefined values and set behaviors and then they're all blasted out on posters and really, you know, cheesy internal corporate comms. You get into the lift and there's a poster, you know, telling you to have integrity or something like this. And as we all know, that kind of thing can make you, I think it can feel very disingenuous if it's not done in a co-creation way. I think we've all experienced when it's done badly. Uh, and then when it's done really well, it doesn't seem like it's an add-on. It feels like it's part of the company. And But I, I think you've got to sometimes be bold in being ready to sort of define who you are as a company. I love things like when you see people's values, one of them is, I don't know, don't be an asshole or, you know, don't be a dick, this kind of thing. But not everyone can have that up on their wall. So it's about what's good for you. <laughs> I think where the expertise of HR can help in those situations is having a kind of an approach to it and a process. And personally, they, those kind of things, I think design thinking, is really a key tool to use, but also being conscious of how do you do it in an inclusive way. You know, even the language I just used then, that's not necessarily inclusive for people depending on the situation. So I think 
HR should always be there representing the human element. Because when it comes to culture and leadership and things, your senior stakeholders can have very uh, strong views <laughs> and, and like certain words. And so it's also good to explore that. So when you say co-create, who is HR supposed to co-create with? Well, who is or who are HR supposed to co-create with? Everybody in, on a certain level. So uh, everyone, at least in the organization and maybe even the wider ecosystem, depending on what the kind of the context is, but at least have, you know, for something, you know, the big topics, but if we take one, something like culture, then, you know, doing some exercises where you're either kind of building some kind of personas of different types of people that represent that organization and then looking at what culture means for them or having some focus groups or sessions where you explore what is the, the sort of organization mean for people and how do they show up each day and what kind of expectations do they have of each other. And I suppose if you link it back to Agile, it's like having a giant team working agreement or something like that, you know, and how do you bring that to life for an organization? Language is really important for those kind of initiatives. So using words that really resonate with people. And so you would do sessions to sort of source that, and then you would prototype a few examples and test that back. And it doesn't have to be the same people. It doesn't have to be huge, you know, amounts of interviews, but as long as you're sourcing a diverse group of people from the organization and you go and test it back with another diverse group of people and you know whatever is on that page or on that poster people will recognize and feel like it's you know and trust where it's come from that's what I mean by co-create so get evidence that it works before you release it basically you actually talk about that last time of how to actually do something small and then run experiments and test it out. So mm. this is a really good. Yeah, exactly the same thing. And and I was talking with a company recently, actually, that, you know, is a good example. They're a very successful tech consulting company that have grown very rapidly over the last few years. And they've also grown internationally. And so they had a lot of people that now were in the company that didn't come from that sort of founding startup that was very clear on its culture and its kind of values. And so now they had all these people that often had joined remotely, had joined in different parts of the world, didn't necessarily go into the office, you know, and connected with whatever that company stood for in in that sort of more old fashioned way of going into the office. So they were exploring, well, how do we almost redefine who we are, try and keep a lot of the the themes of when we were a startup, but be conscious that we're bigger now and we need to also, you know, have our strategy is a bit different and the kind of clients that we have are a bit different. So they saw this need to sort of reset. And we had a big discussion about how that if you don't connect it with what you're doing as a company, your, you know, your actual strategy, your actual mission, then these things around culture and values can kind of feel a bit too isolated or, you know, people find them too fluffy or something like that, but they actually all interconnect. I think my tip is to make it very real and practical. You know, what kind of behaviors do we expect from each other to be able to then go and deliver this job or deliver this value? And if you put it in those terms, people usually get quite excited about those kind of exercises. So now I'm curious, how does HR deal with leaders who behave badly or that the leadership style is creating a toxic work environment or not just leaders? What if a team member is creating a toxic work environment? How does HR deal with that? 
Well, I think the question is, how does anyone deal with that? So there's on one hand, these things need to be treated as on a case by case basis, and you need to be transparent and have conversations and work through it. So I think the big danger is when toxic behaviors are ignored or because maybe someone makes a lot of money for the company, a blind eye is turned. This is where over the years, HR would have policies and procedures. The first thing is having the kind of courage to call things out. And this is where it's about having maybe a private personal conversation to try and see what's going on with whoever this person is or this team. Often these things are contextual. So I do always worry when we talk about one bad person, you know, like they that definitely does happen. But often they're reflective of either the system or something going on that's bigger. And it's different levels. So if you've got a senior leader that's displaying behaviors that are negative, then maybe to start with, it's understanding what's going on for that senior leader. What are, you know, is it that they feel threatened by targets and, you know, or do they feel vulnerable or are they struggling to be an empathetic manager? You know, so there, there might be ways of exploring that on a more kind of coaching basis to begin with. But I think the main thing is trying to always understand people, what the impact that people have on others. But a lot of this goes down to being good at coaching and conversations and calling things out, which I think is a really hard thing to do. And if and I think this is where HR get a lot of negative press, you know, oh, HR's not sorting that out or, oh, I went to talk to HR and they didn't talk to me. So and I agree that HR should be there as a, a champion of the people and help in those situations. But at the same time, there's just the same amount of corporate politics and pressure to deal with as well. So I think those things definitely have a kind of process that you think is a healthy, transparent process that everyone knows about. But the start is a conversation and then you take it from there. You know, I've been in situations where if, if it's being negative for the team is maybe it's actually getting the whole team to talk about things that are happening because people are reacting to others or circumstances or targets or project pressure. So I think these things are contextual. So the flip side, and I think we talked about this last time, is what not to do is to go and build a whole process or policy about one or two people that might display toxic behavior. When these things come up, you deal with it, or you deal with it quickly and you deal with it transparently and you take some action and then you move on. But the main sort of policy and processes that the organization have should be based on that we expect people to come and display good behavior most of the time. So I think think that's just what not to do. That sounds really good. I wish I had you as a child when I had to deal with those situations. <laughs> it was actually a really nice article on that kind of topic that I was reading today. It's in the Fast Company and it's a interview, but it's about HR often sucks. Here's how it could be better. A new generation of HR professionals is envisioning a department that doesn't just tow the company line, but also generally supports employees. And so mm -hmm. it's a nice discussion around that. And, you know, I talk a lot about this in Agile HR, you know, how do we put our people as our customers at the heart of what we do? But this one's sort of saying, do that and then look at how you build trust with your people. And it's about having a good relationship between senior leaders and HR and having good intent and being very transparently internally and externally about how you do things. And, and, you know, and that's the thing. So, you know, I think we talked about reward and pay and things like that last time and performance. Mm -hmm. If you don't transparently talk about how decisions are made, you know, how salaries are decided, then people fill in the gaps. 
and often they fill in the gaps in negative ways. And that leads to behavior that you don't necessarily want to see. So the more transparent you are around why we do things and how we do things, and then if something happens, you call it out and people see that there's some action around it, then people trust what's going on. And so it's about having a sense of how you build trust on a day-to-day basis, not just writing a policy to deal with one negative person kind of thing. But I'll send you the link. You can uh, yeah, that would be that would, into chat. that would be really good. You can yeah. share that with your listeners. Yeah, that would be really nice. Now, recently, or I should say has been in the last few months, I'm sure you have heard that there are a lot of big layoffs. So my question is, how should organization design or reorg be done if one embraces agile ways of working? I will talk about how to do restructures and redundancies and things in, a, in, in an empathetic way. But before I do that, is that you're probably alluding primarily to the tech industry, particularly in the US uh, at the moment. And I just think it's a really interesting study in different approaches to growth. So there's lots of interesting graphs coming out. So if we compare someone like Meta, Google, even Salesforce to a certain extent, compared to say a Microsoft at the moment, there's a really different sort of line that shows hiring over a period of time. And I was even just talking to a local company here in Scotland that actually fell into this trap as well. So this idea that hiring equaled a sense of growth, you know, oh, we're getting bigger, so let's keep hiring, let's keep hiring. And there was a few toxic assumptions, wasn't there, that was underpinning this idea that you could keep hiring in this environment because it was given that certain products would keep selling or interest rates stayed at a certain level. So there was, there'd be good, healthy to have a big debate about whether that was a sustainable long-term way of building a business, because as soon as the market changed, they couldn't keep all of those people. And if we think about agile and agile ways of working and sustainability, how do you grow a business in a way that even when times are tough, you've got an ability to use the innovation and creativity of your people to steer your way out of it, as opposed to just cutting headcount as a way of saving money. So, you know, we see it all the time. And so it's something to call out to begin with that possibly, and you know, I compare it to Microsoft, which has had this more consistent growth trajectory, didn't do mass hiring in the same way. And, you know, are kind of leading the market now as these sort of slow quiet, I wouldn't really call them disruptors, but they now seem to own all the products that everyone has on their PC and in the in an office and all that kind of stuff. And then if I take that into the world of HR and recruitment, so what's happening in within HR is a big debate around how recruitment, or it's often called talent acquisition, may have been too separate to the rest of HR and the rest of kind of the business in some way. And recruiters are tasked with going off and finding the candidates and filling the role, right? So some of their targets is speed to hire, don't have too many open positions, get them in the door, get them in the door on a good price and job done. And more and more, what you're seeing is that actually recruiters not only are sourcing so much great information, they're out there in the market, they're talking to different candidates. They're also talking to the business about who they need and what they need and what are the trends around skills. And a lot of this knowledge is not going anywhere. It's not going into people strategy and also business strategy. 
if a recruiter's out there talking to other candidates and they're finding out that companies are letting people go or there's a change in the tech market, then that's something to, to be talking about and highlighting, you know, or maybe we shouldn't hire any more right now. Maybe, you know, let's just see how we use the people we've got to the best abilities, those kind of things. So then there's this idea of what's that link between recruiting someone and then, of course, that onboarding experience and then their career development. And someone like me has for a while been talking about how all of these things need to be much more integrated and be thought of as a journey and an experience. And if we're thinking along those lines, then we're less likely to just hire and then fire based on, you know, it's not it's not just headcount aren't just levers to sort of move their people's careers. You're better off having a really great performing team that's small. So there's that aspect. Then if you really do need to restructure because things happen and sometimes you also might need to downsize one part of the business because that product is just not successful anymore, you need to help people either reskill, move on or make choices. And you can do that in a really empathetic way. So one of the best ones I saw was a session that a HR professional did with a leadership team and they got them to think about the experience of the redundancies and the layoffs. What was it? And actually think of different personas. What was going on for someone that was going to stay? What were they thinking and feeling? How would you want them to be talking about this? If they showed up the next day, what do you want them to be feeling? What about someone that leaves that has been with us for several years that we want them to have a good feedback about the company. It's not about leaving in a negative way. How do we help them make this decision? Is there, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to help people get some coaching to find the next job. You can help them around CV sourcing. You can essentially help them on their way and different others. And how would people want to be told? Will they want to be given the choice to leave by the next day? There's different approaches and ways that you can do this. So really thinking through human experience of a redundancy and layoff, and then putting plans in place around that. And so the person ran this session and each leader saw that they played an important part in how this experience happened. And they tasked each other with different things to do, you know, conversations to have, who was having the conversation, what would they say, when would it happen, and have that really kind of joined up kind of approach with HR and the leaders. And then being really transparent. So some of the other ones that I've seen is that there's a key announcement and the announcement is something like, We've had to make really tough decisions. The people that we're approaching to leave is not because you don't have the skills and the talent that we want. It's that we have to make some tough decisions and we're going to help you go to your next role as much as we can. And we will miss you. You know, So the, the, even your messaging around it can be really quite powerful in how you do it. So being empathetic, it's people's lives. And of course, we've seen some really great examples out there of the total opposite. We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you for spending some time with us today with Natal Denk. We'll see you next time as we continue our discussions on Agile in HR here on our Agile Tales. Thank you so much for listening to our Agile Tales. Feel free to ping us on ouragiletales.com.